Scripture absolutely paints our high priest as an empathetic high priest. He allows us to come close to us. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. Scripture also says he's Lord. And he's the only Lord. And he is absolutely holy and he is other. And that's where culture goes. I think that's inappropriate. I think that's intolerant. I think that's hateful. I think that's narrow-minded. And I'm like, well, take it up with God. Because God's the one who said it. He said, I am both completely supreme and sovereign over all. There is none like me. How many of y'all would say this past year has been the absolute easiest year of your life? Okay, those four of you who raised your hands, I wanna ask you one second question. Is your metabolism increasing? Okay, we still have one hand left up. Those of you around her, I want you to punch her in the throat. And then, ma'am, you're welcome. You are so welcome to leave. I, I feel like I've been in four or five years where I just feel like I am some days running on fumes. I don't know if you've been in that place, but I'm like, Lord, have mercy. I'm trying my best to honor the Lord with my life. But ever since I brought Missy home, I feel like I am tired to the marrow of my bones. People ask me if I want a husband. I'm like, I'd prefer a nap. Um, if I could just get a nap. Some days I'm so tired and I was in that place not too long ago and I had to fly from Michigan through Chicago back to Nashville. And when we got to the airport, the gate agent announced that because of weather in Chicago, we very likely were not going to fly to Chicago. But then she added with a real perky voice, but we're gonna go ahead and load you on the plane anyway. Um, and I just thought, that's just stupid. Um, but I was trying to still be a Christian because I'd been at this conference. And so I load on the plane and it's not a big plane. It's one of those little tiny, tiny planes with you know, two seats on one side, one seat on the other. And I don't know if y'all flown much recently, but the FAA has reconfigured plane seats to where they're the exact width of supermodels fannies. So they're just, they're hard to squish into. And so I noticed that I'm on the double side. So I go and I get in my seat. I'm feeling all kinds of hateful. And I get in my regular plane posture. And my regular plane posture is I put my um, iPhone earbuds in so that I can listen to music. If I'm in a good place, it's Carrie and Meredith. If I'm in a bad place, it's pink. But I put my... <laughs> earbuds in, and then I get out some really deep theological journal out of my carry-on bag, like um, the Pottery Barn magazine, or people, if I'm in a really bad place. Um, us, I'm, I'm just, I'm sinning, if you see me reading us. Anyway, I get my magazine out, and I was kind of feeling better after a few minutes because they said they were about to close the boarding door. Nobody was sitting next to me, and I was like, score. And I've got a little more room if we ever do leave the tarmac and get to Chicago. But then right after that, they open it back up, and here comes this lady. And I can see from about 25 feet that she's a talker. She looks like a talker. And she's much older, and she's got like five bags. I don't know how they let her on. And I'm watching her go down the plane and try to figure out where she's sitting. I'm in 12C, and 12D is open. And she smiles at me and goes, is that 12D? And I almost lied. I almost said, no ma'am, no ma'am, it isn't. 
But I, I just couldn't lie. She looked so sweet, looked to be in her 80s. So I said, yes, ma'am, this is 12D. I help her get everything situated in the overhead. She sits down and she tries to make eye contact, but I just don't like making eye contact with people I sit next to. I'm like, uh-uh, I've learned the hard way, not making eye contact. I'll be polite, but I'm not gonna make eye contact because that, that means you're gonna have a conversation. I was in too bad a mood to have a conversation. So I just kind of smile and don't look at her. But out of the corner of my eye, I can tell this woman is doing everything she can to get my attention. And so I'm burying myself into this article about Jen and Brad, just very, very focused <laughs> on the article. And she taps me because she doesn't know plain etiquette. She doesn't know if somebody already has their earbud in, you are not supposed to bother them. And she taps me on this shoulder and I take out my earbud and I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, are you from Detroit? That's <laughs> where we are. And I said, no, ma'am. And I, I mean, I gave her nothing, y'all, nothing. I was just totally hateful. I, I lean over my magazine a little more intently. Um, but again, she's older. She doesn't know plain etiquette. She taps me a second time. And I thought, oh, you are kidding me. It's going to be one of these flights. So I take out my earbud even slower. And she said, are you from Chicago? And I said, no, ma'am. And then I turn and put my head on my tray table. Because I thought, I, I just can't even take life anymore. I can't deal with it. I know she's somebody's grandmama, but she's not my grandmama. And so I'm going to ignore her. I'm just going to sleep on my tray table. Well, the flight took off and I fell asleep because the next thing I know, grandmama is not only poking me, she's messing with my hangy down parts. And so I woke up. I'm a little bit offended at first until I realized what she's doing. My phone had fallen off and she was trying to put my phone back under my hangy down part. And so when I realized what she was doing was very thoughtful, I, I took my earbud out and I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I know I've been pretty rude. I've just had a super, super long week and I'm worn slap out. My name is Lisa. I'm actually just flying through Chicago to go to Nashville. That's where I'm from. I said, where are you from? Are you from Detroit or Chicago? And she said, I'm from Detroit and my name is Agnes and I'm 83. I was like, well, that, that's so great. I said, well, Miss, Miss Agnes, what are you going to Chicago for? And she goes, oh, I'm not going to Chicago. I'm going to Mumbai, India. Well, now she'd really grabbed my attention because I thought, you know, she's traveling by herself. She's older and she's going to India. And I said, Miss Agnes, what are you going to India for? And y'all, I may as well have asked the head elf to show me the toy closet because her face just... <laughs> Whoa, just split into this huge grin, and she said this with great exaggeration. I'm going to India to tell people about Jesus. And I was like, I'm going to be struck by lightning. Like, I can't believe it. I'm sitting next to Jesus Jr., and I've been hateful. And so I, I turned now, my full attention toward her, and I said, Miss Agnes, tell me your story. I mean, tell me how you came to know Jesus. And so, sure enough, she starts telling me her story. She told me she fell in love with her husband when she was 15, he was 17. They got married two years later after she graduated from high school. She got pregnant right away, had one son, things were just going swimmingly, and then she got pregnant with twins. And right away in that first trimester, her doctor told her that one of her twin boys was very, very sick. 
and it was very likely that he actually would not make it to term. And she said, Lisa, I was so concerned about this baby in my belly that I had a neighbor who prayed. And she said, just because I didn't know what else to do, I asked her to lay hands on my stomach and to pray for my children. And she said, that started a relationship with my neighbor. I ended up going to church with her, and that's where I found Jesus. She said, but when I told Bill, her husband, that I'd come to know Jesus, he said, don't bring any of that religious mess up into this house. He said, I'm fine for you to go to her house. I'm fine for you to go to church with her, but I don't want anything to do with religion. So she said, I, I didn't talk about it anymore. She said, what I did not know was there was a gentleman who my husband became friends with at work, and he had shared with him his concerns about this son that, that might not make it. And through that relationship at Bill's work, Bill became a Christian. So she said, right before our twins were born, both my husband and I found our faith in Jesus Christ. And she said, not too many years later, where our boys were still little, Bill came home from work one day and he said, baby, I believe God's called me to the ministry. And she said, when he was 30 and I was 28, we started a church. And she said, I don't know if you've ever been by our church. And then she names this church. And y'all had been sitting next to her church that week. There's a coffee shop right down the street from this church they started. And I said, I, I sat next door to your church yesterday. And she said, oh, Lisa, I wish we had the time to tell you the miracles we saw in that little church. The people who came to know Jesus as their Savior and the marriages that were restored and the people that were healed. She said, we had a glorious ministry. She said, but then when we were in our 40s, one of our boys had gotten married and his wife was about to have our first grandchild. And I told Bill I wanted to add on to our house because she said we grew up in this little bitty house. And she said, I thought I want it to be just a little bit bigger because I want, want a whole mess of grandkids and I want them to all be able to come over and stay at Nana and Pop's house. And she said to save money, Bill and the boys and the boy that they didn't think would make it to term actually made it to term. He had MS, but really amazing young man. And she said the boys came over and they decided that they would do all the construction by themselves. And she said there was a tragic accident and during this construction project, Bill fell off the roof and he was killed. And she said, and then just a few months after that, my boy who was born sick, um, he died. And she said, you know, no, no parent should outlive their child. And she said, Lisa, I fell into a pit in my early 40s that was so deep and so dark I didn't know if I would ever get out of that pit. And she said, I was in there for about a year. Some of y'all may feel like you're there right now. It may have been all you could do to drive into the parking lot this morning. You may have thought, if one girl is perky to me, I'm going to punch her in the throat. <laughs> you know, I can't do this. I can wear the T-shirt and I can pretend, but I just feel like I'm barely putting one foot in front of the other. She said, I was in that pit for about a year. And she said, and then one day, I'll never forget it, she said, I felt like God himself came and stood at the edge of my pit. And he said, Agnes, I know Bill was the love of your life, and I know you love your son with your whole life, but they were not your life. I am your life. I am your hope. It's time for you to get out of the pit. And she said, I was 43 years old, and now I'm 83. She said, Lisa, in the last 40 years, I've been on 51 international mission trips to tell people about Jesus. And I was like, you are kidding me. She goes, oh. Second half of my life has been so much more exciting than the first half of my life, she said. But Lisa, 
can I ask you to pray for me? And I said, well, sure, Agnes, ask me anything. She said, well, I don't know where I'm staying when I get to Mumbai. She said, you know, I'm going by myself, but I know God has called me there, and I know some people in Mumbai. I'm just not sure how I'm going to get from the airport to this village, and I don't know where I'm staying. And she said, so when you get on to, to Nashville, back come to Nashville, and you put your head on your pillow tonight, will you pray for me? And I said, well, Agnes, I'll do that, but let me go you one step better. Let me pray for you now. Let me pray for you now. Would it be all right with you if I lay hands on you and pray for you? And she said, oh, that'd be wonderful. And this precious saint, you were in this tiny plane, she leans all over into my seat, and I lay hands on her, this woman that I had just been so obnoxious to, just 15 minutes before, so cruel. Y'all, we miss miracles sometimes because we don't look up. I lay hands on this precious 83-year-old saint, and then I realize right before I start to pray, the entire plane has listened to us. I mean, you could have heard a plane drop. It was a little plane, probably just 20 people on the plane. And so I was like, all right, Jesus. So I prayed the whole gospel in my prayer for Miss Agnes, a whole gospel, real Pentecostal prayer. We get off the plane in Chicago, and I said, Miss Agnes, I'll wait with you, and I'll help you get your bags, you know, and get you to your next gate. And so we were the first people off the plane waiting in the jetway for her bags. Y'all, 11, I counted them, 11 people from that flight of commuters when they got off the plane stopped and said, Miss Agnes, I just want you to know I'll be praying for you too. Miss Agnes, I just want, I was like, we experienced revival at O'Hare. Like, this is unbelievable. I got her to her gate, and I realized I had like 12 minutes to make my flight back to Nashville, and I had to run through O'Hare, and at this age, that's not great because I wasn't wearing a sports bra, so people were injured, but I barely made it to my flight back to Nashville, and what I was thinking the whole way was, Lord, I want a little more Agnes. I want a little more Agnes in me. Y'all, if you, if you identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, all of us, according to Scripture, are compelled to show some measure of that kind of devotion, some measure of that kind of passion. And contrary to culture, it's not based on your personality type. I don't give a flying flip what your Enneagram number is. And I don't give another flip as to whether Kiki loves you or not. The whole point of being a Christ follower is we are ambassadors of the new covenant. We are ministers of the gospel. We are salt in a flavorless world. We are cities on a hill that cannot be hidden, y'all. That's who we are. That's our identity. All of us should look like Agnes. All of us should be so compelled by the gospel that people can't get close to us without experiencing Jesus. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Hebrews because I know it sounds like I just pulled a fast one on you. Because I started by saying, I'm in a difficult season, and now I've just basically lowered the boom and said, we're all supposed to be fired up. Y'all, we can't do that on our own. And so I wanna give you just a little encouragement from a group of people in Scripture. They were called the Hebrews, and they were so much like us. The Hebrews were Jewish Christians living in the vicinity of Rome, and that means they're living in a very pluralistic, polytheistic society where God had providentially plopped them. There were tons of religious people, but here's what the religious people said. You know, this is my path to God. You can choose any path you want. There's tons of ways you can get to God. I'm not going to put my way on your way. 
you've got these Jewish Christians who go, well, actually, we're monotheists. We believe there's only one way. And his name is Jesus. And when, when they started sharing that with their culture, you can imagine how well it went over. It went over like a lead balloon. Their kids started getting beaten up on the way home from school. They lost their businesses. Some of them were stoned. Some of them were massacred. Just for saying, I believe there's only one way. And his name is Jesus. Their Agnes got many of them murdered. Their devotion to Jesus, it didn't play very well in their society. So several of them said, you know what? I am so tired of fearing for my life because of my faith in Jesus. I'm thinking, let's just lay a little lower. I mean, we know what we believe in private, but when we're in public, let's just say we're doing an Instagram story. Let's, let's not talk about Jesus so much. Let's just say God or faith because I'm kind of tired of being killed. As a matter of fact, when we were Jews and we had Jehovah in the mix and we didn't think we had met the Messiah yet, people didn't like us. They turned down their noses at us, but nobody was killing us. So maybe we should just revert back to Judaism. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? I was at a big women's conference not too long ago. I was the least well-known person on the platform. Other big dogs on the platform. I was just thankful to be there, hoping that I didn't do anything heretical. And so I had two messages. After my first message, the woman who headed this whole thing up called me aside and she said, you know, you know, you tell somebody's just about to give you a spanking, but they're going to give you a hug first. You know, it's the blast, your heart. She said, you know, Lisa, we love your personality. And you know, you're an effective communicator, but here's what we realized. You say the name Jesus a lot and... Uh, We've just found that the women who come to our conference prefer the name God because, you know, God is less offensive. It's, it's, just, it's just less narrow than the name Jesus. So in your second message, we would appreciate if you would just say God a little more often and, and just not say Jesus quite so much. And because um, I've always been such a quiet, submissive type, um, <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. No, I didn't. I said, ma'am, I said, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I want to be, really respect the fact that this is your conference. But when you say God in our culture, um, a lot of people are actually talking about the statue of the Chinese restaurant, or they're talking about the crystal hanging around their neck. If you're talking about God, big G God, Genesis 126 and 27, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I love that God. But if you're talking about a little G God, that God didn't walk up Golgotha and stretch out his arms and down across from me. That God's name for me is Jesus. So the only way I can talk is to say the name Jesus. And so it was like I had Jesus Tourette's the second message. I was like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Y'all, we're getting to a time in culture, and I'm not just talking world culture, I'm talking even Southern evangelical culture, where people are going to say, I'd be more comfortable if you didn't talk about Jesus so much. I'd be a little more comfortable if you just talked about love, if you just talked about all of us being included. But the whole repentance element, I have a hard time with that. Y'all, that's exactly where they are in Hebrews. So their pastor gathers them together. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, some have argued it was Priscilla, not this Priscilla, but Priscilla from the New Testament, although this one's smart enough to have written it. But he refers to himself in male-specific pronouns. 
So unless ancient Priscilla had major gender identity issues, it was not Priscilla. Some have argued for Luke, some have argued for Paul. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. What we know is he was a pastor and he loved his sheep. I mean, he loved these young believers, even though they were struggling. Even though they were barely putting one foot in front of the other, even though some were considering apostasy. This Jesus stuff is too hard. So he gathers them together in a home church, and he preaches this message that is, in effect, to a team that's getting beaten like a drum. And here's how he starts. Long ago, this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, that's polymeros, Latin, polymeros, polytropos, many times, many ways, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior as to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he starts out by saying, Jesus is the boss. Jesus is it. Jesus is supreme. He is sovereign over all. Our culture will tell you he was a nice guy. He's one of the prophets. If he's your way to God, good on you. This is my way to God. The pastor of the Hebrews go, no, he's not a way. He's the way, and he is the exact imprint of the nature of Father God. He is God. He's not an afterthought. He's not an intermediary. He is God. Then he says, Verse 15 of chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there because we're going to head back to 1 and 2 in just a minute. But then he goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he says, here's the two things when you're struggling, when you're barely putting one foot in front of the other, here's the two things you need to remember about Jesus. He is supreme. He's supreme. He is the only true God. Secondly, he's accessible. He is the king of all kings, and he allows you to get real close to him. It's a miraculous juxtaposition, you know, that he is fully God and fully accessible to sinners. And let me tell you, our culture is all about the accessible part. Modernity is infatuated with a God that they can get close to. As a matter of fact, most modern culture tells us we can be little gods, so the idea of an accessible deity, I mean, that, that, that's cultures all over that part. It's like, yeah, that sounds good to me. That sounds great to me. That actually will play really well on blogs if we just talk about the accessibility of Jesus. Let's make him kind of a life coach. He's going to encourage us. He's going to hug us. I mean, it's going to be awesome. He's probably going to buy us coffee at Starbucks. But then when you go, yes, Scripture absolutely paints our high priest as an empathetic high priest. 
He allows us to come close to us. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. Scripture also says he's Lord. And he's the only Lord. And he is absolutely holy and he is other. And that's where culture goes. I think that's inappropriate. I think that's intolerant. I think that's hateful. I think that's narrow-minded. And I'm like, well, take it up with God. Because God's the one who said it. He said, I am both completely supreme and sovereign over all. There is none like me. And because I formed you and I fashioned you, I created my son in incarnate nature so that he could come and connect with you and reconcile you to me. Don't, but don't make any bones about it. He is not you. He's not you. He is supreme. He's not human. Some people get confused where it says Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels. That doesn't mean he's less than angels. It means because he loves us so stinking much, he willingly laid down his scepter in glory and he came down to this broken planet called earth and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed our dirty feet. So he makes himself accessible. He's fueled by compassion, but y'all, he is not human. He is not a, a co-pilot. He's not a life coach. He is the Lord of all lords. And the pastor of the Hebrews says, that's what's going to keep you hanging on. That's what is going to keep you from drifting. The very next thing after he talks about the supremacy and the accessibility of Jesus, he gives them a warning. And really the warning is the axis that this whole sermon rotates on. Here's the warning, and I think this is so apt for our culture. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, remember he's talking to believers here, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Drift away in Greek, para hereo, para hereo. It sounds innocuous, doesn't it? I mean, drift to me sounds like a sweet, sweet tea commercial. You know, you, love, you got buddies and they're in inner tubes and they're floating down the river and it's like, hey, hang on to my hand so you don't drift. Sounds real innocuous, doesn't it? Y'all, in the Greek, it's not innocuous at all. It's actually a very active verb when he says, don't drift. I went to the beach a couple of years ago by myself because I just needed some time to be quiet and I relax better if I'm in a bathing suit by myself. And so... <laughs> I went to the Panhandle of Florida, that's one of my favorite beaches, and I, I went to this little known beach where there's hardly anybody's there, it's called Water Sound, and it was the spring, so there were not that many people there anyway, and I had my chair out, and I had my Bible, and I had a couple of magazines, and I thought, I am just going to sit here for a day or two and be quiet, I just need my batteries recharged, and this one afternoon, it was a beautiful day real windy, but it was a beautiful day, and I was reading a magazine, and over the top of my magazine, I saw a woman, maybe 50 yards out, who was waving. And you know, I'm trying to focus on my magazine. And so I kind of noticed, and I looked back down, then I noticed, and I thought, she's not waving. She's in trouble. Now, when I was in high school and college, I was a lifeguard for about eight years in a row. And somewhere deep in my bones, I still have that kind of responsibility of a lifeguard. That if you see somebody's in trouble, you drop everything and you help somebody who's in trouble. And so I looked around. Nobody else sees this woman. There were only like six of us on the beach that day. And I thought, oh, 
oh, goodness gracious. So I just took off. Took off. I did what I'd been trained to do years before. I'm running as fast as I can until the water gets mid-thigh. Then I dive. I swim as fast as I can, head up toward this woman going, I'm coming. It's going to be okay. Don't panic. I'm coming. It's going to be okay. Then I do what you're supposed to do with drownings. You're supposed to dive right when you get to the person and turn them because the most common drownings are double drownings because when people panic and somebody comes to the front, they grab them around the neck and then they both drown. So you're taught and water safety instruction courses to go down, twist them by their leg, come up and get a fireman's chest carry so that you've pinned this one arm and they can't grab you. So you pull them up just like a buoy and that's how you swim in. That's what I do to this woman. I get her in that carry and I'm like, it's okay, my name's Lisa, I've got you, we're going to go back to the beach. And she's like, and as soon as she started talking, I thought, oh, she's not from a foreign country, she's from Bud Lightville. Um, Because just... (laughs) Just the, the smell of beer, just, I mean, it was so thick, I'm surprised I get, didn't get drunk just breathing next to her. And so I thought, okay, and I was like, ma'am, if you can understand me, I need you to kick. Because pretty quick, we got caught in um, an undertow. And I'm a strong swimmer, and I've got plenty of flotation devices that God graciously just put right around my body. I'm still carrying my baby weight. And so I should have been able to get her in pretty quickly. But y'all, I realized we're starting to go further and further out. And I've lifeguarded for years. I've never lost anybody. And I started getting scared. I thought this woman, and she was thrashing, she was, I thought, I'm going to lose this woman. And I was like, Jesus, please help me. Please give me strength. Out of all the years I lifeguarded, that rescue was the most difficult rescue I've ever done. I get this woman in. She falls on the beach. It had probably only been two minutes. It felt like 20. When we got in, she fell on the beach, got sick. I pulled her up so she wouldn't be pulled out again. And uh, then I pulled her hair and I walked away. Um, I didn't really... (laughs) I found the people that she belonged to, and I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to go in. I kind of want to just go in and take a shower and just kind of get away from all that drama. And I walk into this hotel that I've stayed in four or five times. I know the guy at the front desk, and he could just tell I was kind of disheveled. And he said, what's the deal? And I said, oh, just some really drunk woman. I just had to help her get in. And he said, somebody was swimming? And I said, oh, yeah, this one was past the first sandbar. I said, she was, she was swooning. He goes, did y'all not see the red flag? And I said, you know what, Curtis, I didn't even notice the red flag. And he said, Lisa, it's one of the worst riptides we've ever had um, at the beach in the last couple of years. He said, three people just drowned in Destin. He said, I am so surprised you were able to pull her in. Y'all, when the pastor of Hebrews says, don't drift, it's not an innocuous warning. What he's saying is, if you do not actively pull toward Jesus, there is a riptide called Satan, the enemy of our soul, and he's pulling you away. You're never in an innocuous place. You're never in a position where you can just tread water. We don't have that option. Because we have the enemy of our soul, who the New Testament says is a carnivore, is a roaring lion, and so make no bones about it. When you've got friends who are going, you know, I really love that you go to church, and that's cool that you went to hear that crazy Australian woman, and I heard Priscilla Shire's really good. I mean, that's awesome, but like, don't tell me their their messages. I really don't want to hear all about Jesus. You know, that's not my thing. And we think, I just need to be a friend, and I just need to tone down my Jesus part. Y'all, there's nothing about that that is innocuous. 
There's nothing about what we are seeing all over culture with people who call themselves Christians and are going, you know what, we don't have to do it the way the Bible said to do it. Because you know what, you can just treat this like Shoney's. You can just pick and choose whatever you want in here, but you don't have to go cover to cover. I mean, surely he didn't mean this applies today. When people tell you following Christ is all about affection, I'm here to say, well, that's half the story. Half the story is he loves us with an everlasting love, with an unconditional love. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning without the love of Christ. I'm so grateful for the Song of Solomon. We always think it's God's version of the Kama Sutra, but it's so much better than sex, especially for those of us who don't get to have it. Y'all, and the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9, and it's about God as our bridegroom and us as the bride. He says, one glance, one glance of your eyes and you captured my heart. Of course, his love for us is what sustains us. Of course, his love for us is what we lean into. But if you separate his love from our repentance, that is not the gospel. There's no such thing as true love without responsibility. We have a responsibility. And Chris has told you today, we're really praying for miracles. One of the miracles I'm praying for is that some of you would recognize for the first time how much he loves you. And in leaning into Jesus, you'll recognize my life is supposed to look different. Not because I'm earning his affection. He gave me his affection freely. We don't earn our salvation by works. He says, I give that to you freely. I condescended to come and lavish you with my affection. But as a PS, as a response to my love, then you recognize my superiority. Then you live your life a little different than the way everybody's living it around you. Then you go, you know, but as for me and my house, we're going to walk this way. I know you love reruns of Sex in the City. I can't put that mess in my mind. I know you think it's innocuous to read all these funny blogs. You know what? Anybody who says that book is not authoritative, I'm just not going to go on that blog anymore. I don't need to put that stuff in my mind because life is hard enough. I want to be as close to Jesus as I possibly can. One of my favorite groups of women to work with um, are girls at a place called The Next Door in Nashville, Tennessee. And I love these girls because they're um, at a faith-based rehab shelter. And I don't know if you've had the privilege of walking along with women who are recovering addicts, but I'm telling you, there is just no energy for facade there. So I love these girls at The Next Door. And I was reading a leading a Bible study there recently. And there were five of us in a borrowed office. I had my Bible open in my lap. I don't even remember what I was teaching on when the girl to my left, her name is Melissa. She did six years at Tennessee Prison for Women for possession with intent to sell and she was an accessory to armed robbery. Melissa just pushes her chair back right when I'm in the middle of teaching and she went, I miss having communion. And I thought, I just get the sense we're not going to finish Bible study today. (laughs) And I said, well, baby, how long has it been since you've had communion? And she said, oh, Miss Lisa, it's been at least six years. And I said, well, honey, they have communion at TPW. And I said, Prison Fellowship has communion. You could have had communion the whole time you were there. And she said, oh, no, Miss Lisa, I was almost always in solitary confinement for fighting. And I said, oh, yeah, baby, I forgot about your little anger management issues. And, And I said, well, honey, we can have communion tonight. And she said, we can't have communion. And I said, yeah, we can have communion. She said, no, ma'am, Miss Lisa, we ain't got no preacher. We ain't got no grape juice. And I said, well, baby, it's, it's best if you've got a preacher or a pastor or a priest. I said, but you know, the Bible says that if we put our hope in Jesus, 
We're all ambassadors of the covenant. We're all ministers. I said, so, so we don't have to have an official pastor. And I said, baby, you don't have to have grape juice. The grape juice is symbolic. And I said, I can see over your shoulder on that office desk over there. We're in a borrowed office. I said, I can see a, a Pepsi bottle. And I can see there's still some juice at the bottom of that bottle. And I said, so we can use that, that soda uh, as the liquid, you know, symbolic of Jesus' blood. And I, I don't have crackers, but I've got Ricola in my purse. <laughs> and I said, that might serve us better because you got to suck on those puppies a long time before they, they leave. And she was just horrified by my suggestion. And she said, Miss Lisa, we don't know whose Pepsi that even was. And I said, baby, you were an IV drug user for 10 years. Does it matter whose Pepsi it was? And she eventually came down to my line of reasoning. And I got the Pepsi bottle. And I got the Ricolas out of my purse. And I read some passages from this perfect love story that is inerrant from cover to cover. And then I just handed Melissa the Pepsi bottle. Normally, I would have disseminated the sacraments because, you know, I was the Bible study leader, but it just felt right to give it to Melissa. And she looked at me kind of stunned. She recognized the gravitas in that moment. And then she just real slowly unscrewed the top on that bottle, and she poured a little Pepsi out, and she handed it to Tara, the girl next to her who lost her husband recently to a meth overdose. And she said, Tara, this Pepsi represents the blood of Jesus that he shed for you because he thinks you're worth it. By the time that Pepsi cap got to me, I couldn't speak. She did the same thing with the Ricola, unwrapped that first one, turned to Tara and said, Tara, this, pet, this Ricola, this cough drop, represents the body of Christ that he broke for you because he thinks you're worth it. By the time they gave me my cough drop, I had tears streaming down my face. And I thought, you know, if my seminary professors could see us tonight, some of them would probably take offense at how formally we are celebrating the sacraments. But I didn't sense that God was displeased at all. I felt like the Lord was just leaning over from glory going, tonight my girls get it. Tonight. My girls get that they're worth it to me. He is absolutely supreme, and he is perfectly accessible. At the end of the sermon, the way he closes with these precious Christians who are struggling in their faith, he says this, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Yeah, we are worth it to him. Let's today, let's today seek to live lives worthy of our calling. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us ears to hear more fully who you are as our creator, redeemer. You alone, Jesus, you alone are worthy.